I wanted to take a moment to say thanks for listening to this podcast. Your support makes it possible for the series to exist. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show, you'll help others find it too. So please take a minute to rate and review An Absurd Result. And thanks again. As a reminder, this series does contain details of a sexual assault and also adult language. Previously on An Absurd Result. I don't know how anybody could look at that sketch and say that's Jimmy. I actually don't. You've seen the sketch, I'm sure. You know, you, you're taught that, you know, you're innocent to prove guilty. You're taught that good always wins, blah, 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 all that stuff when you're a kid. So, you know, you believe that. And it's not really true. But I can also appreciate the fact that when I pulled that photo of Tipton and compared it with the police rendering, wow. And then you couple that with the DNA, well, I, this is the guy. In the last episode, you heard about Ronald Tipton, the man matched by DNA at the Montana Crime Lab to evidence from the 1987 rape of a young girl. Linda Glantz, the victim now in her 40s, heard his name too. And then it got complicated. The first person to fill in Linda was Yellowstone County's chief deputy attorney, Julie Pierce. We had talked about how we were going to let her know and I don't know how it came about, but I either volunteered or Scott asked me if I wanted to go, and I said that I would be honored and happy to do that. Julie called Linda and then knocked on her door to give her the news in person. Linda asked her husband, Patty, to be there. And he was here with me when she stopped by, and she said, we have conclusive DNA evidence against this guy. And the more she was talking about it, she goes... You know, we know where he is. He's in White Sulphur Springs. We know who he, we know his address. Um, we are going to make sure he's arrested. We're going to have a press conference. She's like, so we'll keep you informed of all of this. Like, this is these are the steps that we're going to take, and we're going to charge him. And I don't remember exactly what I said. I remember exactly, you know, going there and getting out of the car and meeting with her and her face and her reaction. And what was her face when you told her? Like, it was, it, she was shocked, you know, like, after all these years, wow. And then very emotional, as I, you know, I imagined that she would be. Um, and I'm glad her husband was there, because that was really important. What Linda heard that day was, we've got him. We've got this guy. Then I started checking the prisoner rolls in Yellowstone County, because you can kind of check, like, I checked them every day. My mom was calling me every day, because once I... Once I found out that we knew who he was, I called my whole family. Um, and we never saw his name. We never saw his name. And I was, I'm a little standoffish and I try not to push too much on certain, and I just, that's just my nature. So I never, I was like, okay, they need time. They're figuring this all out. But I was also checking for like scheduled press conferences and what's happening. And it was really, there wasn't a lot of communication within a couple of weeks after I saw, saw her and spoke to them. So. so this was the moment when Linda, after everything, got quietly pissed off. It's episode five of An Absurd Result, The Waiting. I'm Jewel Banville, and I met Linda Glantz a few years ago when she was in a kind of limbo and ready to finally talk to a journalist. This was after she knew about Tipton, but wasn't hearing anything about cops charging him. 
I can't remember how long it was between initially having the conversation and just not hearing anything until finally I was like, I, I need to know what's happening. And that's when they started kind of filling me in on they're running into legal roadblocks, that they can't just arrest him and charge him because there might not be a legal avenue to ever do that. I filled in Julie Pierce about why Linda was upset enough to talk to me, that it was because their conversation led her to believe Tipton was headed to jail. That was probably my fault. I should have been better about clarifying the how things were going to work. I wonder if you even knew at that point. We might not have known at that point now that I look back at it. We knew what we had and were capable of telling, were able to tell her at that point, but we didn't necessarily know the ins and outs of how the legal process would work after that. So that's probably a fair statement. The ins and outs here start where a lot of older sexual assault cases do, with the statute of limitations. So that's the legal clock on some crimes, the amount of time the state has to bring charges. All but seven states have a statute of limitation of some sort on sex crimes. You've probably heard about these statutes in connection to a number of big stories. There's the global scandal involving the Catholic Church, of course, plus Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, and others less famous. In this case, figuring out how Montana's law affected the next move rested with Julie Pierce's boss at the time, Scott Twido, the Yellowstone County attorney. So when the crime occurred, the statute of limitations for a felony other than homicide, was five years. Then it bumped up, like in, maybe like within a year or two to when it's a child and it's a sex offense, it's 18 plus five. And then it bumped up to 18 plus 10. And so we were trying to chunk all that. What he means is that the statute kept changing and it took a minute to figure out which one applied on a 1987 crime. In the end, the one that counted gave Linda five years after she turned 18. Well, Ronald Tipton wasn't on anyone's radar when Linda was 23. And also, Jim Bromgard was still sitting in prison. This was 2001, a year before he got out. So here's another huge obstacle. The clock doesn't start over after a wrongful conviction. Not in Montana, not in any state I've found that has a statute of limitation. No one can tell me why people don't make more noise about that about why the state doesn't get more time to solve a crime after they put the wrong guy in prison. Among the people I asked about it was Scott Twido. He's been at this for a while. He was a deputy prosecutor when Jimmy got his freedom, and now he's the boss. And he knows the law. You know, it's just like mind-boggling to me that the law hasn't figured out or legislatures haven't figured out that the clock should start over if the wrong person's in prison because the case is closed. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I certainly agree with the fact that the it wouldn't be the focus of any investigation if they believe that Baumgard was convicted. So it's it's the irony in this whole thing is DNA exonerates in one, and then points us in the other direction. But we just we can use the DNA in this one as long as we want to exonerate. We just can't use this to inculpate or whatever it is. So it was just like. Yeah, it's kind of frustrating. Yeah, kind of frustrating. That's a word. And also, a law that doesn't exist doesn't help Linda. But there is a law that does exist, and that's what Scott Twido used to keep this alive. It had never been tested in the way that he would test it. In 2007, the Montana legislature debated and then passed what's called a DNA exception. 
It happened because of a state senator named Carolyn Squires, who died a few years ago. For the record, my name is Carolyn Squires, and I represent Senate District 48 in Missoula, Montana. I present to you today Senate Bill 104 at the request of the Department of Justice. It would amend the statute of limitations to extend the time allowed for the prosecution of sex offense cases in which the identity of the suspect is conclusively established by DNA. So as she said, this law would extend the statute of limitation if, and only if, a suspect is identified by DNA. Even the level of DNA was included in this bill. It had to meet a pretty high standard of having 15 matching strands to be considered conclusive. Senator Squires brought the bill to avoid what she later called an absurd result. That's actually a legal term. It gets brought up when legislators and lawyers map out some crazy scenario that could happen if a statute is followed to an extreme end. In her testimony, Squires brought up a what if that has some echoes of what actually happened in Linda's case. An example of this would be a 20-year-old woman is raped. She does not know the offender and cannot identify him. Law enforcement finds no match of the DNA evidence in the case. 11 years after the offender is arrested for a burglary and submits a DNA sample, law enforcement positively identifies the suspect as responsible for the rape 11 years earlier. Under the Montana law, current Montana law, the statute of limitations would have run out and the rapist could not be prosecuted despite the conclusive evidence. Under the proposed amendments to, and that's what Senate Bill 104 is, the suspect could be charged and tried. No one testified against the bill. Plenty of stakeholders did show up in support. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I'm Jim Kimball, representing the Montana Association of Chiefs of Police, and we would ask for your support for the bill. Thank you, Mud. Thank you, Mr. Kimball. Appreciate your brevity. Further proponents? Mr. Smith. Mr. Chairman, uh, Jim Smith, Montana County Attorneys Association. I'll be brief as well. Uh, support the bill. I think the law is catching up with science and technology here, as it has to. Uh, I think it would be a great comfort, and the county attorneys think it would be a great comfort to victims and their families to, to go ahead and, and move this bill along. When the bill was then signed into law, it became to Scott Twido what he would call... Um, what I would call an act of legislative grace. This legislative grace isn't unique to Montana. 27 states have passed similar laws that give DNA priority over whatever statute of limitation is on the books. In Montana, the DNA exception also has a clock. It gives the state one year after a confirmed DNA hit to charge someone. That put even more pressure on Twido, which was okay by him. It's just saying the state only has so much time to bring a case forward. And the reasons for that are memories fade. And also, state, get your button gear, get your investigation done. That was the other thing. The clock was ticking. I had to make a decision sort of, you know, once we got the confirmed sample. I mean, I only had a few months here to make the decision. But here's a hitch. Even though he had this 2007 law on his side, he still wasn't charging Tipton. And eventually, his office reached out again to Linda to tell her why. They started throwing in terms like ex post facto. A Latin term you probably know means after the fact. It's part of the Constitution. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 3. 
Basically, it means you can't pass a law that makes something illegal that wasn't illegal before. So this is how that applies here. Montana passed its DNA exception law six years after the statute of limitations in this case expired. One side will reason that raping a little girl was illegal in 1987, so the new law doesn't change that. And the argument on the other side says you can't apply a law retroactively after time has legally run out. I've never studied law. I don't understand a lot of the procedures. It was really, really tough for me to wrap my head around what was going on. I did know, you know, I got a big big explanation about ex post facto. That's really complicated. (laughs) So I was trying to do some of my own research. And then I think I was obviously so emotional about it. It was really hard for me to get into it. Um, And, you know, when it's not just what's happening right now, the entire event starts replaying in your mind all the time because it's all you ever think about. So it's hard for me to move past that. Prosecutors weren't immune to how this was affecting her, and they were getting better at communicating with Linda. They were getting to know her and thinking about her as they tried to find a legal path. Here's Scott Twido again. What Linda went through um, and her family went through, that's every parent's worst nightmare, right? Twido was a toddler when his family moved to Billings. He was a teenager, 14 years old, when a stranger broke into Linda's house on Virginia Lane. Forget the Bromgard stuff. This is just a nice house on a nice street in the middle of Billings, across the street from a park. It's a child in her bed where she's supposed to be protected. Her sister's next to her, and this happens. So he dug in. We told her from the very beginning the problem wasn't a proof problem of who did it. It was a legal problem of this Supreme Court decision in 2003 that sort of changed ex post facto law. And that's a big deal. The decision he's referring to is a 5-4 judgment from the 2003 U.S. Supreme Court. Stogner versus California set a precedent for how states can apply laws they later change. It basically says you can't do that. You have to go with what was on the books at the time of the crime. But Stogner also dealt with sexual assault. In this California case, two women accused their father of molesting them when they were kids. Marion Stogner, their dad, was indicted for criminal acts occurring from the mid-1950s through 1973. So that was nearly 30 years before California changed its statutes of limitation. The Stogner case also deals with a couple of consistently tricky areas when it comes to sexual assault, repressed memory, and delayed reporting of a crime. And that's a key difference. In Linda's case, of course, there's DNA, not recovered memories, and there's no delay in reporting. And there were those 15 years when the system thought they had the rapist in prison. With Stogner, the court decided California couldn't retroactively apply changes to its statute of limitation, which is exactly what the Montana DNA exception sought to do. In 2003, the Supreme Court told California it could not prosecute Marion Stogner. And that was a problem for Scott Twido, who has some thoughts about that decision. America is the stupidest decision ever. Uh, well, I have some questions about that. Okay. 
He launched in on Stogner before I had even set up to record in his office. It doesn't take much for him to get fired up about his biggest roadblock in this case. I've read Stogner many times. Yeah, it was a very interesting um, decision. Again, I, I went to law school prior to Stogner coming out. I learned ex post facto, and basically ex post facto, in my mind, is when you get a new change in government, they don't go through and enact a law to make criminal innocent conduct to go back and punish their opponents, right? That's sort of the genesis of ex post facto as I learned it in law school. So to Twido, he's thinking that this newer DNA law applies because it doesn't in any way change what was a crime in 1987 and is still a crime now. This is never innocent conduct. You know, it's not doing any of that. And so I was just astonished. To be quite honest, I was astonished when Stogner was out there. But Twido decided he might just have the perfect case to fight Stogner, to maybe take it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And when he made that call, the cops finally and formally charged Ronald Tipton. Like Jim Bromgard did before him, he faced three felony counts of sexual intercourse without consent. For Linda, that hard part, that excruciating wait, was over. But he was never arrested um, at, at any point. Right. The big moment happened when these charges were simply filed. Tipton showed up at an arraignment hearing, pleaded not guilty, and was released to wait it out at home. In the meantime, the prosecution focused on the Stogner problem, and it wasn't a secret. The county attorney ID'd it as his Achilles heel in a letter that eventually got to Tipton's lawyer, Robert Stevens. Yeah, because uh, the prosecutor, uh, Scott Twyter, the county attorney, had written a letter advising of the background of the case and what the issues were identifying the Stogner case. Is that unusual for yeah. the prosecution to identify what, what's going to be argued here? Uh, I think it's unusual, and I think the case was unusual, so it was justified in this instance. So, Rob Stevens. He's a respected lawyer in Billings and has practiced in Montana for more than 40 years. He was hired by the Tipton family after they decided they didn't want to go with a public defender. Stephen says a relative helped pay his bill, but didn't say who that relative was. Before we talked in his conference room, Stevens had his staff get out all the boxes dealing with this case. He went through them, and he let me go through them too. His notes, his papers, and documents. Do you mind if I stay in here and take a look at some of this stuff? No, you're welcome to go through the files. If there's anything that uh, piques your interest, you're certainly welcome to it. Most of the documents in there are public, but they can be hard to get. This kind of openness is pretty rare. Even before my dig, in our hour-long talk, Stephen struck me as, well, a really good lawyer. Smart and decent. What matters to him, personally and at his core, is the law. And in regard to the case against Ronald Tipton, he says the law is clear. Uh, the, uh, the proposition that we should punish someone because they're guilty is a good proposition. But uh, if the state has let the time lapse to prosecute them and tries to resurrect it, then it's a constitutional violation, and we have to serve the Constitution. And that extends to his thoughts on states' rights. We talked briefly about a scenario, about how statutes of limitation differ depending on where a crime occurred. For example, when Linda lived and worked in Yellowstone, she was technically a resident of Wyoming, and Wyoming doesn't have a statute of limitation on sexual assault. 
Well, if there was no statute of limitations for sexual offense against children in Wyoming, then that's true. But it occurred in Montana, and Montana statutes controlled. It's a creature of, of the legislature, and it's not a fundamental right. And as long as you have statute of limitations set by the legislature, then the, the state is, is bound by that. Um, and it's one of the rules the state has to play by, regardless. I pressed him about defending Tipton after his client's DNA put him in Linda's childhood bedroom. But like I said, he's a good defense lawyer. Uh, I, I did not make a specific interrogation of my client regarding the accusations of the offense. I kept going, laying out some of the facts in this case, that the DNA was key evidence that was used to exonerate someone who'd served nearly 15 years in prison. And that it was used 12 years after he got out to identify conclusively that this man raped this girl when he broke into her house in Billings. Yes. Do you agree with that? Do I agree with what? That that happened? It happened. Certainly it happened. but, you know, you're either going to have the rule of law or you're not. And it was a constitutional principle that's a paramount principle. And if we don't adhere to the Constitution and those principles, then we have a form of anarchy. And uh, the result is an unpleasant result for most people. It's a, it's a result that most people don't understand because of the visceral reaction to the nature of the crime. He went on to paraphrase a quote I've since looked up. It's from the French political theorist Baron de Montesquieu, who wrote 31 books in the 1700s collectively called The Spirit of Laws. I think a lot about how Rob Stevens put it that day in his conference room. Um, but we're not, uh, we're not judged by how we treat our best people. We're judged by how we treat our worst people. After not a few delays, Ronald Tipton faced the charges against him in the 13th District Court on July 28, 2017. And that was just a day-long hearing. Um, I went to that. My mom and my husband were there. This hearing wound up being the first and only time Linda, as an adult, would be in a room with Ronald Tipton. And there's no way she would miss that. I knew that people would know who I was when I was in there. That was fine with me at that point. I had spent a lot of time hiding and not telling people. And by the time all of this came around, that just, that the energy of hiding all of it just wasn't worth it anymore. There was a moment after a recess when she and her mom and Patty were coming back into the courtroom. Like pretty much walking between Tipton and his family that was there. Like, you know just right through them and walk within feet of him. You just kind of have to put on blinders and walk forward. And I was, I was actually more worried about my mom, (laughs) you know, making, you know, not wanting her to show, I'm sure all of the emotions she was feeling. Cause we know the process is moving forward and we're happy about that. But everything that's happened in between the day I was raped to that moment, to all the people that have been hurt, to all the people that have been affected, you know. What did you think about him? 
I was pretty shocked at how small in stature he was. And granted, to an eight-year-old, it's a lot different. But um, just small. Obviously, I believe, mentally ill. Um, I don't know if... Did that come through in the hearing? I, a little bit, I think. Personally, that's some of what I got out of it. Uh, just not a lot of joy or happiness in that life at all, ever. You know, not just for, <laughs> not just in that moment, but um, yeah. Uh, I was again. I was surprised at just how small in stature he was, because in my mind just such a big looming figure. I asked for a recording of that hearing. The court reporter told me it doesn't exist. I do have the transcript. Tipton did not testify. A lot of the people you heard from in this podcast did take the stand. Megan Ashton from the crime lab was there. So was detective Ken Paharik, who remembers his exact thoughts as he faced both Tipton and Linda. It disgusts me that I have to look at him and I know that he knows, that I know that he did it. And I have to describe this in a professional manner in a courtroom. Um, and, I, and, the, and the victim is right, she's watching this. Tipton's ex-wife, Kim, said in court that she and Ron were in Billings in March 1987. Amanda Tilson, whom you met in the last episode, and Ron's brother, Ken, took the stand and talked about Ron's mental health. Then it was up to Judge Mary Jane Nisley. She's a former prosecutor who's been a district judge for more than a decade. She took about three months to issue her findings of fact. All 25 of them, 25 pages of them. Is that an unusual? Yeah, she did a very thorough, thoughtful job. Judge Nisley found in favor of the state and, by extension, Linda Glantz. Rob Stevens and his client, Ronald Tipton, lost. Sometimes I just see it as, as you know, uh, wrong thing after wrong thing has happened. But it didn't, it wasn't, this part wasn't wrong. Officially what happened is the judge refused to drop the charges. In her ruling, Nisley quoted long passages from the debate in the legislature that then became the 2007 DNA exception. She wrote that the whole point of the law was to avoid, and here it is again, an absurd result. She said that the 2007 law is designed to apply retroactively. That's the point. It's there to give the state a chance to prosecute sexual assault if the clock has run out, if, the big if, conclusive DNA evidence becomes available. What it amounted to was a district court judge in Billings, Montana, going against the U.S. Supreme Court. Here's Rob Stevens again. She went to great lengths to, to justify the conclusion that she came to that the statute indeed applied retrospectively and that it was intended to do so and that it, uh, that it could be distinguished from a Stogner holding. What did you think about that decision? Well, I, first of all, I respected Judge Kanaisley for the length that she went to and the thoughtfulness, obvious thoughtfulness that went into her opinion. Uh, the second uh, reaction was, damn it, she's wrong. <laughs> Linda, of course, thinks she got it right. 
And she had a feeling the hearing might go that way. I remember feeling good. I remember feeling like something's happening. I don't know if it's going to go our way, but I watched the judge really closely and they don't really give a lot. <laughs> Obviously they can't, but there were certain moments where it was just like, geez, I know like <laughs> she's a smart woman. In her introduction, the judge wrote that this case can be framed in big terms as a battle between protected rights and science. It was clearly her intention to push this to the highest level of legal challenges in this country. I asked the judge to talk to me about it because, if I can be crass here, it was pretty ballsy. Lord, I asked her. I wrote her a letter. I sent emails, including one to her personal Gmail. I followed up with one assistant, and then when she left the job, I asked her a replacement. I knocked on the judge's office door, even though a sign said I shouldn't do so during COVID. Ultimately, though, they ignored me, and things moved on to the next step. All rise and give your attention. The Honorable Justices of the Montana Supreme Court. That's right, the Montana Supreme Court. The decision about whether Linda would finally have the closure she'd been seeking for years rested with seven elected justices in the state's highest court. And we'll start there in the next episode. An Absurd Result is a production of Mopac Audio. It's reported and written by me, Jewel Banville. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzeridin and Jonathan Beal. Sound editing by Robert Williams. Music by Nick Bomarito. We had production help from Shanna McGarvey and Chris Moss. For more, visit absurdresultpodcast.com and follow us on social media at Absurd Result Pod. Thanks for listening.